There are many ways to gather data about people. Like Jane Goodall, you can observe. Simply note how the world behaves. Or you can survey people, asking them how they feel or what they might do. Both ways are fraught. As an observer, how do you know that you have the right sample? And what if what you see is a product of something else that you can't? Surveys are potentially worse. People might not know their own feelings or preferences. And according to today's guest, Seth Stevens-Davidovitz, people might even lie. For example, who's going to vote in the next election? This is impossible to predict via surveys because as Seth puts it, nobody wants to admit that they have no intention of voting. After working as a data scientist at Google, Seth realized that Google searches are better predictors of voter turnout than a survey ever could be. He points out people search how to vote or where to vote or polling places weeks before an election, and that predicts that turnout will be high. What else does Google tell us about our national psyche? Quite a lot, it turns out. Seth joins us to discuss his 2017 book, Everybody Lies, which was a New York Times bestseller, PBS NewsHour Book of the Year, and an Economist Book of the Year. His new book, Don't Trust Your Gut, offers self-help lessons across all categories, from dating to parenthood, with tips drawn from verified data. Seth's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, Vox, and more. And today, he is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. This is an interview you won't want to miss. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Steph Stevens-Davidowitz, author of Everybody Lies. In this episode, he and Satyan discuss Google Trends, effective online dating strategies, and what the data says about our gut instincts. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Data citizens love Alation because it surfaces the best data queries and expertise instantly. The result? Folks know how to use the most powerful data with guidance from the experts. And with Alation, you don't have to choose between data democratization and governance. By embedding governance guidance into workflows, Alation welcomes more people to great data fast. That means your data strategy can play both offense and defense. Learn more about Alation at alation.com. You wrote a book called Everyone Lies. That's obviously a... Everybody lies. Every, everybody lies. I apologize. And that's obviously a, a, you know, that's a disheartening statement about the human race. So tell us, tell us more. Well, it could have been less. I, I kind of think yeah, everyone's like, are you lying? And I say that I'm a compulsively honest person and people are like, but you know, I'm a compulsively honest person. There probably are some other compulsively honest people, but I didn't want to call the book like 97% of people lie. Uh, it doesn't have quite the same punch as everybody lies. Uh, which really grabs people's attention, but <laughs> by the way, of course, is itself a lie, right? Because yeah, yeah. So that, that, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, I guess I'm not as compulsively <laughs> honest as I say because uh, I used a lie in my in the title of my book. Uh, but I think the the book is, to be honest, kind of dark and depressing. Uh, at, at points, I try to make some jokes in it to lighten the mood a little bit because it does get into some arenas. Uh, where people, where there is a lot of dishonesty, things like racism or sexuality or uh, child abuse or do-it-yourself abortions. And the problem uh, with understanding these topics is that not just people lie to other people, uh, but people even uh, lie to anonymous surveys. 
So if you ask people immediately after an election, did you vote in the election? Uh, more than half of people who we know didn't vote tell surveys, yeah, yeah, I voted, I'm a good citizen, I exercise my democratic duty. Uh, so if you want to learn, learn about, say, racism, you can't just go and survey people and say, are you racist? Or do you not ha not like African-American people? Or did you not support Barack Obama because he was black? Or are you drawn to Donald Trump's message because uh, it's so racially charged? And uh, But I think we have new tools to understand this. So a lot of Everybody Lies focuses on anonymous and aggregate Google search data. You see all these insights into the human condition that you'd never, never otherwise see. So racism, for example, I was shocked by how frequently people were making explicitly racist searches. People were searching things like N-word jokes. And in the time period I was looking at, which thankfully they've gone down over time, but when I was looking at them, people were searching it with the same frequency as Lakers and Migraine and Daily Show and Economist. So it wasn't a fringe search. Uh, you know, we're talking about millions of people making these searches every year. And when you actually do a map of where these searches are made, uh, you see first a, a surprising map that the searches are made in parts of the country that we hadn't historically thought of as particularly racist. Places like divide the United States into two regions now based on racism. It wouldn't be north versus south. It would be east versus west. Uh, there's much more racism in the eastern part of the country, much lower racism, western part of the country, California, Utah, Idaho. Hawaii is the lowest, lowest uh, racist searches. And this map sorry, pre predicts all these outcomes. So in regions of the country that made more of these searches, Barack Obama did worse than previous Democratic candidates. And Donald Trump performed very well in the Republican primary in places that had high levels of racism. African-Americans have worse outcomes. They have uh, they die quicker in these areas. Uh, th there's a bigger black-white uh, wage gap. Uh, so over and over again, we're seeing that this kind of secret racism that you wouldn't otherwise see except in Google searches predicts outcomes. And then... Is this a case where you were looking for data on research, uh, racism, found Google Trends, or was it the other way around? How, what was the chicken and the egg in this original curiosity that you had? And how did you get to this place where this became the topic of a book? I when I was my P a PhD student, I was just constantly writing things down on Evernote and like, you know, ideas I had. And most of them were the dumbest ideas ever and they never went anywhere. And I saw the Evernote note to myself, which was that I, you know, found out, I forget even where I heard about it, Google Trends. And right away I said, I bet you people make inappropriate searches into this. And that's where it's going to be interesting in this data set. So like, it was very... It was conscious that the area to focus on was like the areas that otherwise are hard to research because, so if you think of Google, like why Google Trends is so powerful. So I'm an economist, we're obsessed with incentives and Google gives you an incentive to get the information you need. And Pornhub similarly gives you an incentive to get the information you need. So even an anonymous survey there's no incentive for you to tell the truth. So what do I get? Gallup calls me up and said, did you vote in the last election? What do I get by saying the truth? Or Gallup calls me up and let's say, you know, hypothetically, I was gay and was embarrassed that I was gay. And Gallup calls me up and says, are you gay? What do I get by telling Gallup yes to that? Nothing, right? But if I search, let's say, how to vote, where to vote before voting an election, I get the information I needed on how to vote. And those actually predict turnout uh, very well. Search like how to vote, where to vote. If I were a racist and really enjoyed N-word jokes, then 
I'd want to learn the latest N-word jokes. Uh, so there's like, there's this incentive to, to tell the truth that other services are, even, even surveys, even though they're anonymous, they're not giving people proper incentives. I meditate. And one of the ideas behind meditation is like, oh, well, you know, like not all your thoughts are actually serious. And like most of them are like ridiculous and you should just like kind of discard half of them. But if you just take this premise of like, okay, well, look, like people think things that they don't actually act on. How much of this do you think permeates real activity in the real world? And is there a way to correlate that? Evan Soltas and I did a study on anti-Muslim attitudes and people type into Google these awful things like kill Muslims. I hate Muslims. And that's kind of a great example of something that seems like just a crazy thought, like that might, you know, enter someone's minds and they just type into Google and it's kind of like, well, do we even care about that? But then we actually found that, that when these searches are, they correlate with hate crimes against Muslims. When more people are making these types of searches, there are more hate crimes against Muslims. So that's an example, that's kind of proof that even though these searches are so weird and may just be a thought, those thoughts correlate. And of course, that doesn't mean that 100% of the people who made that search go on to commit a hate crime against a Muslim, but it says that some fraction of those thoughts are turning to real life uh, action. And another study, really important study, didn't get enough attention, uh, not by me, by other researchers, searches for suicide on Google, they found correlate with actual suicides. And the correlation is much higher than surveys asking people, do you have suicidal ideation? So when people are typing, I want to kill myself, suicidal help, suicide hotline, whatever, add sad, sad searches, you, we see in the data, those areas have higher levels of suicide. And again, it, it doesn't mean that everybody makes that search. It may be a researcher looking what comes up. It may be a doctor trying to understand suicidal ideas more. And it may be someone who had you know, an instantaneous thought that immediately went away and is otherwise the happiest person on the planet and just like, was really frustrated and made that search and it doesn't go anywhere. But in those searches, there are some people uh, who are going to sadly, you know, end their lives. And uh, that's another area where <laughs> I started doing research in that because I was very interested in like, what can we learn about the suicidal minds? Uh, talk about an unprecedented window. Uh, what do people search before they search for suicide? And there are all these really interesting things in the data uh, that we wouldn't otherwise know. Kind of to my point of how this data is revolutionizing our understanding of the human mind. You know, we don't always know what leads someone to that really dark place. And in this search data, you see some things that are surprising. Uh, one of the things was the frequency with which people search herpes diagnosis, particularly young people, and then suicide. And that's like not something we really think of as causing someone to be suicidal. But if you think of, uh, you know, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, the mind is so poorly developed and they get a diagnosis of an STD, uh, they think their life is ruined and over and and now think that they're like, and, and now some of them sadly are uh, drawn to, uh, you know, thoughts of, uh, of ending their lives and how can we use this information to help people in this situation. Data can reveal difficult truths about our world. It can also give us tools to improve our lives. Seth and I discussed an issue that is top of mind for many data radicals, online dating. Christian Rudder did this fascinating study where he said, what, who are the most successful daters on online dating? And he found that the people who got the most like messages were just who you'd expect, just conventionally gorgeous people. So think of Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman, like they just clean up on online dating. For, for people who aren't there, it's such a grave injustice in the world, how different the life 
of a you know of someone in that category is in the in the dating world. But then he found some, another category of people who did surprisingly well, and it was people who had extreme looks. So think of people who like heterosexual women who shave their head, or people with wild glasses, or a weird facial hair, or dressed oddly. And it's like, why are, did they do so well? And the the point is that in dating, there is surprising variation in what people find attractive. And really, in dating, you don't want to be you want someone, some people to find you really, really attractive and just leaning into some extreme version of yourself. In my case, like I think I took from that, I should just nerd it out. So I used to think I, I was such a nerd. I'm like, I need to be less nerdy if I want to you know, attract a woman because we've long been told that the nerd is an unattractive characteristic. And I, I'm like, after reading this study of Christian Rutter, I'm like, well, no, I just need, I just need one woman basically who I'm attracted to. And I really want a date to be really into me. And I'm going to probably have a higher chance of that if I just am who I am, which is more nerdy Then I'm never going to compete with the average person not being like a normal, like non-nerdy person, but I could be the nerd's nerd. Uh, it also relates to Pornhub, where I'd say you see in the data a surprising amount of variation in what people are attracted to. So, you know, like weight, for example, uh, you know, we usually think that skinny people are considered more attractive, but there are a surprising number of people who are looking for porn for overweight people and uh, people looking for, yeah, nerd porn or whatever it is. There's always, there's always some people are really into it. And <laughs> like, I think the the best dating strategy, if you're, if you're Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman, just like get a normal haircut, like, uh, dress very nicely. Like, don't make, don't rock the boat. Like, uh, your situation is set. Just thank the gods, the genetic gods, for giving you these gifts. But if you're not, for those of us who are not in that category, I think you the best strategy is really to appeal to some group for whom you are the Brad Pitt and Natal or Natalie Portman, and then ask a ton of people out, willing to get rejected until you get shocked by someone who it turns out is really into you. And that basically is what turned my dating life around, to be honest. My current girlfriend, is her friends asked her, what's your type? And they were going around in circles. Like, I like muscular people. I like tall people. I like this, I like that. My girlfriend said, I like nerds. <laughs> like, that was her answer. There's a couple of things that are interesting about this. The first is that, like, all marketing is basically positioning. So if you have a new product in the market as an entrepreneur, obviously, you know, one right here, the first thing that you learn is actually what you want to go for is your initial niche market because being average basically just sticks out in nobody's mind and nobody actually really cares. So on some level, dating's a market. So why wouldn't that be true there? But in dating, I guess there's another thing, which is that you could advertise this feature, this, you know, whatever the feature would happen to be, but you might be selecting into an audience that you're not very interested in. So I guess the presumption, if you're going to lean into the feature, is that it's going to actually help you select into the thing that you want to attract. I think that's a great point. That's it a sounds like it works for of, you. But I, I think this advice is almost universal in that everybody probably has a version of themselves that is more extreme, that they could be leaning in more to, that they don't lean into for fear of being rejected. And... I think that the the truth is you are going to be rejected a lot, but that's also your path to a great life. Similarly to in business, like in, just you're saying in entrepreneurship, 
I think everybody wants to do like the average thing that everybody else is doing and not be too weird and just like put a few buzz- buzzwords together instead of doing something that's a little weird and quirky where some people are, you're gonna go to a party and everyone's gonna be rolling their eyes like this person's crazy, but then you're gonna have some obsessive fans. Data leaders push their business to embrace data-driven decision-making. But how do we fare in our personal lives? Seth's newest book applies a data-driven approach to self-improvement. My new book is called Don't Trust Your Gut. When I was writing the book, my basic approach to the book was I just thought it was interesting that there's all this new data in all these huge areas of life because of like the explosion of data. And that now, you know, I, I gave examples in dating in, in dating already. And there are studies that I think are way more convincing than we've ever had about happiness and about entrepreneurship and about parenting and about making money. People have studied de-identified anonymous tax records for like the first time and really gotten insights into those, uh, into, you know, into who's rich, who makes it as an entrepreneur big data studies of artists of who actually succeeds, which are telling us new things. The basic point of the book is just, there's all this data out there. You should know about it. It's a self-help book with like 50 tables and charts, uh, which is not a normal self-help book. The other reason I wrote Don't Trust Your Gut is I read more self-help than anybody I ever know, I've ever known, which is a little embarrassing to admit as a supposed intellectual because intellectuals hate saying they, admitting they read self-help, but I read everything, like how to get more powerful, how to get richer, when I was single, how to date, uh, uh, fighting depression, because I struggle with depression a lot. Like I just re- read all the books and I'm always so frustrated because I feel like the books are just not really credible in my opinion. They just like, I'm like, well, they're not, the evidence isn't to the rigorous standard that I would think evidence should be put to. And uh, so I wanted to write a book on all these topics where I'm like, I'm just going to give actual evidence on it. And the other thing I did in this book, which was very important to me, is I noticed a lot of self-help books because I read so many self-help books again. They have a theory. If they, if they call themselves an evidence-based self-help book, they have a theory and then they just Google a study to defend that theory. There's a, a study for anything like uh, broccoli is good for you. Broccoli is bad for you. Uh, meditation is good for you. Meditation is bad for you. Three glasses of wine are good for you. Two glasses of wine are good for you. So like, if you have a theory, you can go and find a study to defend that theory and, and then say it's evidence-based. But what I did in this book instead was I literally had zero idea what I was going to say on any topic. And I just read every study in the area. And I'm like, these actually, I believe are convincing. Usually I found there's like one methodology or one series of studies that is just like way better than all the others because it's using like an enormous data set, whereas other ones are using 30 data points. So I'll give you an example, Uh, happiness. So obviously important question. Most happiness studies, even happiness studies that went kind of viral are totally crap in my opinion. They recruit like a few, a couple hundred undergraduate students and they like ask you what makes you happy or something. And it's like, that's a study. And you know, who, who knows the sample size is tiny, who knows how undergrads relate, you know, different. You need than to other look at their Pornhub searches. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's so <laughs> incredible. And then I found about these projects, they're just uh, available thanks to our digital age where they ping people on their smartphones and they say, what are you doing? Who are you with and how happy you are? And the largest of these mappiness, they have more than 3 million data points on happiness. 
They've done like all these amazing things that are just so much more convincing than every other study. They're like taking advantage of natural experiments. I always found there was one big thing like that just stands out in the data. And the major lesson I found from these studies is that the things that make people happy are so freaking simple. They're like things that human beings have been doing since we were hunter-gatherers. Like people are happy when they're with their friends, when they're going on a hike in nature, near water, in a beautiful environment. Like I, and, and, and like many of the modern aspects of life, when people are doing them, they report they're really miserable. So social media is the, offers the least happiness of every leisure activity. And there've been experiments that show that people's depression lowers when they are randomly chosen to quit Facebook. Things that make people happy are really, really simple and kind of old fashioned. So I kind of, I conclude, uh, don't trust your gut with what's the data-driven answer to life. And I say the data-driven answer to life only uncovered in smartphones due to our modern era, big data, uh, the data-driven answer to life, uh, be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. <laughs> literally, yeah, and get off your, again, get off your damn smartphone. Yeah, like that is literally, like that to me boils down everything in happiness research. Uh, the simplicity of the uh, of of the things that make people happy and the kind of old fashioned nature of of many of them. So you obviously looked into happiness, and you mentioned a whole bunch of other fun areas like parenting. Like, give us a grand tour of, or not a grand tour. Give us like the other top two things that stood out that were maybe counter to people's gut and what they otherwise believe or might believe. So most of how kids turn out is genetics. Like there were all these studies of twins and adoptees, and they found that parents on average make less of a difference than we usually suspect. But then recently they found in tax data that the neighborhood kids grow up in matters a lot. They actually did something really clever. They compared like families that move when they had multiple kids at different ages. So one of the kids is going to spend like 10 of the year, their years in Denver and another kid's not going to spend those years in Denver. So what happens when they move to this area? Like did the kid who spent more time in Denver uh, do better off? And then you're kind of controlling for the genetics aspect of things because it's the same family. And they found that neighborhoods tend to have bigger effects than people might suspect to the point that I think it's pretty clear that the neighborhood you raise your kid in is by far the most important decision uh, you make and kind of swamps all the other ones. And the reason that neighborhoods turn out to be so important is kids seem to be influenced by the other adults you expose them to. Adult role models are really important. They've done studies that little girls who grow up around female scientists are much more likely to become female scientists themselves. And black boys who grow up in a neighborhood with a lot of black fathers around, even if they're not, even if they grow up without their father around, have way better life outcomes. They have great role models around them. One, one thing I take from this is that parenting is hard in part because kids rebel against some of the things you tell them. Uh, so the, the parent-child relationship, as Freud told us, is a very complicated one. But the parent, the neighbor-child relationship is much less complicated. So like if, if the person down the street or the, your, your friends, your kids are probably going to think they're really cool. So they may be having more influence than you sometimes think. So I, I think a data-driven answer to parenting it's almost outsourcing parenting a little more than you might naturally expect, like kind of putting your kids around uh, in the environment of people you want them to turn out like. Getting back to the title of your book with regards to gut instinct. So you have all these findings in all of these different areas of life where 
people would perhaps behave differently than the science might otherwise tell them. Do you find that lots of people ignore this data? I mean, did you did you find that most of the simple advice is stuff that just people literally didn't do or wouldn't do or couldn't do and that their gut instinct was counter to many of these findings? I think they're counter. And I think telling people it actually has an effect. There actually have been studies where if you tell people what activities tend to make people happy and it was a randomized controlled trial, they do more of these activities and they are happier. So just telling people that watching Netflix and playing computer games when you study 3 million iPhone pings tends to make people really unhappy, but taking a hike with friends tends to make people really happy. The evidence suggests that that could lead to differences in decision-making. And certainly in my life, I'm a very different person than I was before I wrote Don't Trust Your Gut because I learned all these things that I hadn't known that have led to different decisions. There are some things you tell you tell people and it's like, it's not surprising them and the problem is just doing it. So you can say like, eating processed foods is bad for you and gonna lead to gaining weight. Uh, and like, don't eat Doritos. And then like, I don't think just telling people that Doritos are bad for you is gonna lead to a huge difference in behavior. The problem is not with the knowledge. The problem is, you know, our brains are designed to crave these flavors that Doritos and other processed foods have in abundance. But I do think there are things like relax about everything, but put more energy into the ki- the role mo- adults you expose your kids to, or be an extreme version of yourself and ask more people out, or take more hikes and try gardening or spend more time in nature and spend less time on social media and computer games, where I think, you know, people... I, I hope and believe that some people just being told that uh, will make uh, different and better decisions. Yeah, that is not true of uh, one of my kids, but you know, certainly we are going to keep on trying and I'm going to put my, your book in front of him and see if that, if that makes an impact. Or, or maybe I should have a neighbor put, I, maybe I should have a neighbor put a book in front of him and see if that has an impact. <laughs> <laughs> so you- there, there are some things in the book like, I have a section, basically looks are massively overrated in dating. And I'm, I literally titled that section, like looks are overrated and other advice you've long been told and consistently ignored, but maybe slightly less likely to ignore it. If you look at long-term couples, they've done studies of more than 11,000 couples and like what predicts happiness and like the conventional attractiveness of your mate has basically no predictive power. Like the things that predict happiness Happiness in general is pretty hard. Romantic happiness is pretty hard to predict, but the things that have some predictive power are psychological traits, like someone having a growth mindset or being conscientious, having a secure attachment style. Like all these psychology terms that I've kind of ignored in my life uh, have a lot of predictive power and things like the uh, conventional attractiveness of your mate or how tall they are, what occupation they are in. All the things that basically everyone tries to date on like have no predictive power of how happy you are. So clearly, if you want to be happy long term, not only should you care less about looks, you should actually focus more of your energy on like less conventionally attractive people because the competition is so much slower because everybody is so overvalues uh, looks in, in dating that even if you do end up with somebody who's beautiful, you may have to sacrifice a lot uh, because everyone's trying to date someone beautiful. Maybe they have really bad psychological traits 
which is the reason they remain single or something. There's like, but, but again, I, I'm telling people that and I, I like, I, I have no idea if anyone's going to follow that. Cause like, that's probably also hardwired in our uh, DNA to seek out uh, conventional attractiveness. Well, there's that, there's that great scene from um, a beautiful mind where John Nash is at the bar. I don't know if you were, if you, I mean, You've probably seen the movie because you're an economist, but yeah, yeah, the game theory on how to win a beautiful woman or something, right, right, and the, you know the idea was go go for the uh, the the not all of us should go for the non the the, the least or the the not most beautiful women because in theory then there would be a chance for all of them to win. So, but that's hard to do, obviously, yeah. and, and it's and yeah. it would require well, it would require knowledge and it would require discipline. So. I guess, you know, a lot of your impact, or at least the work, the impact that you're trying to make, and I think it's very similar to this in some ways, the impact that we're trying to make, which is how do we get people to think more scientifically? And I guess, you know, as you've done this work, uh, you, both with, um, you know, obviously Don't Cross Your Gut has, has not yet come out, but how has you, have you seen impact come back to you? And do you think that this is now like this idea of scientific thinking is becoming more popular or less popular? Are we all fighting an uphill battle? Any learnings there before we move out? It's become more popular, but the difficulty I've seen is that people want to do what they want to do. And then they think that scientific, being scientific is finding evidence to confirm what they already want to do, which is not, in my opinion, the scientific process. The scientific process is like how I approached don't trust your gut. You could read my book proposal. I, I'm like, I'm going to write about parenting. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I'm going to write about entrepreneurship. I'm going to have no idea what I have no idea what I'm saying. Or write about you know happiness. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And then allowing yourself to be surprised, or and then make different decisions based on that. And that's very hard. What I what I what I encourage in a data driven mindset or an evidence based mindset is to be willing to go where the data tells you, even if it's really really shocking or really really surprising. There's actually when I was doing my research for my New York Times column. I did this study of Stormfront, this white nationalist site, uh, getting back to depressing topics. And uh, it, I talked about how many American anti-Semites there were on this site. I just found out, my mom told me that my dad, when I wrote this column, his response was, Seth has gone crazy. And he's like, Seth has gone down a, like a wrong path of conspiracy theories thinking that there's some group of anti-Semites in the United States of America these days, like Seth lost his mind. And then the Charlottesville protest happened where all these people chanting like death to Jews. And my dad went to my mom and he's like, I guess Seth was right. And I think that's the real data-driven mindset is when you have data that makes you look crazy to be willing to go with the data. I guess, against your gut. So I also thought it was nuts that there were these secret anti-Semites in the United States. I'd certainly never encountered them despite being a Jew in the United States. Yeah, which which is, I think, a phenomenal learning. I mean, if you're a leader trying to build an organization that is trying to bias towards data, then look for people who have taken brave or non-conventional tax or at least at the very minimum, don't tie them their ego to the outcome uh, with whatever judgments that they happen to make. I think that that's a really powerful thing because often if you have somebody who's really outspoken and forward, they're going to be perhaps tied to the thing that they were arguing for or the thing that happened to have been popular or the thing that got them some notability. The other thing you don't want is just yes people who you have a theory and you 
tell your data scientist, like, is my theory right? And the data scientist just comes back and says, yes, 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 you're right, no matter what you said. Like, you got to be willing for the data scientist to come back and say, no, actually, your theory is wrong. Uh, we need to do go a very different direction. Yeah, which I think is true for leadership at almost every level, but certainly it's got to be true of the people who are purportedly responsible for science within your organization. So you've obviously done the scientific work. What advice would you give to those folks who are starting out and want to be able to build a career in and around science? Any learnings that looking back you would have done differently or the same? I think being early is very valuable. This kind of does go with don't trust your gut. One area our guts are terrible is exponential curves. So when something's growing exponentially, we can't really project out. And being getting in early on an exponential curve is really, really valuable in your career. And it goes to a little bit the same thing in the dating advice, where you have to be willing to look a little weird. Uh, so when I was first studying Google searches, when I'm like, I'm going to devote my career to studying Google searches. I, mean, I didn't devote my whole career with it, but I devoted, say, 10 years. People are like, Seth's a freaking weirdo. And I told you, my dad thought I was crazy. Like there was, like now it's considered pretty obvious. Like, again, I, I go to a talk, I say, who's heard of Google Trends? 95% of people raise their hands. They have a Google Trends analyst on the team. Uh, but when I was doing that, it was considered insane. And like, and, you know, people are like, this isn't properly weighted data. And there's, you know, there are all these flaws in the data and they're like mentioning all the flaws. And I'm like, yeah, it's not perfect data, but the fact that millions of people are typing N-word jokes into their into Google is clearly revolutionary data that we have to get some be able to get some insight out of. Uh, so I had this very strong feeling that it was going to be big, even though at the time it wasn't big. So I think that's something to try to do in your career, which is hard for people. Maybe I should write a book, Don't Follow the Herd. If, if everybody goes left, people's instinct is to go left. If everybody goes left, my instinct is to go right. Uh, and I think that can be kind of goes to not dating the person everybody else wants, not trying to date the person everyone else wants to date. Uh, I think that's a valuable life approach. Yeah. I mean, all the strategies about like, how do you focus your scarce time and resources and energy? And if you're doing what the average person is doing, you're just going to get the average or maybe even the below average outcome. So that's incredible advice. Seth, this has been just awesome and such a fun episode and such cool writing. So thank you so much for taking the time and for giving us uh, everything you've learned over the years. Yeah, thanks. I only have one joke left in life and it's uh, that I wrote the book, Everybody Lies, and there's nothing people lie more about than how much they enjoyed your time on the podcast or how much they enjoyed your book or how much <laughs> they enjoyed your talk. So I am highly skeptical of people's compliments <laughs> on these topics but thank you <laughs> yeah i lie about a lot of other things apparently but 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 not in this case that so awesome thank you so much we use data to bring objectivity into a world that isn't always objective how we collect data impacts our findings human bias can sneak in when we choose what to collect and how Worse still, we can't always trust the data that we do collect. And it doesn't stop there. How you present data will impact your response and further change what you're measuring. Nuanced qualified claims rarely pique interest. You're better off picking one detail and diving in to make one big, sensational claim, which then introduces more bias, more reactionary behavior, 
and more distortion. Thanks to Seth for unpacking the lies behind the confusion behind what we think might be the reality. And thanks again for a super amusing conversation. This is Satyan Sangani, CEO and co-founder of Alation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Are you a leader in data? There is a new white paper detailing the steps you can take to launch an effective data governance initiative. Visit alation.com to get your free copy.